0: What is philanthropy? Donations to good causes. The love of mankind. Preventing and solving social problems.
1: Six-figure gifts.
0: Giving of your time, talent, and treasure.
1: If you ask a million people, you will get a million answers. And that is the root of many of the problems inherent in the philanthropic sector. If we are not on the same page about what it is, how can we expect to move forward towards a common goal? Hi, my name is Monique and I am a BIPOC fundraiser with over 15 years of
0: experience. I am Valerie and I'm a white fundraiser with 10 years of experience. Each month, our goal is to dive into different aspects of the philanthropic sector from our varying perspectives to discuss how the sector can move forward beyond our current state to get on the same page and truly make a difference in our organizations and communities.
1: Whether you're a nonprofit leader, a foundation manager, or a donor looking to evolve your practice, we're here to offer insights and actionable advice to help you move beyond philanthropy.
0: Hello and welcome to Beyond Philanthropy. I am Valerie Johnson. I am one of your co-hosts, and we are here today with uh, not only our co-host Monique, but also a guest, Aaron Morton. I love Aaron. Um, we worked together about ten years ago, and we have kept in touch and done everything from drinking martinis to hiking along the way and fake hiking as well. Because sometimes we like to say we're hiking when we're really just walking and eating. Um, so that, I think that's the best kind of friendship to have. So I. I'm going to go ahead and pass it off to Erin to introduce herself, because that was a very unprofessional way to introduce us to the world. So
2: take it away, Erin. Thanks, Val. Well, I think it's like probably the most authentic way to introduce us to the world. I feel like I would tell that story in your living room. I would tell that story in a ballroom full of of high-end donors. So, um, and we did, I feel like we did hike when we had those martinis too. So just so everyone knows, hiking is like the big thing for us. Definitely. It all comes back to hiking. (laughs) I'm Erin Morton. I am a development professional in Philadelphia. I've been in the field for about 10 years. I've mostly worked on um, science and medicine. So a couple of years at the AACR, um, a few years with Temple Health, and most recently at Jefferson Health, working on health equity programs um, and leading the campaign pillar around that community for our reimagine campaign so excited to be here I don't I have an opinion about everything I don't often talk about my opinions in in fundraising so thank you for inviting me ladies this will be kind of cathartic probably releasing things I didn't know I had to say so. <laughs> pretty much all we do right money
1: <laughs> it is it is but I mean but let's let's get into it so today's topic is the CFRE so Belle, you have one. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not have one. And Aaron is on the fence of getting one. So why? Let's talk about you know what the CFRE is and Belle, why you have one and Aaron, why you're thinking about having one. And I'll jump in as to why I don't have one.
0: So the CFRE is the Certified Fundraising Executive um, Credential, I guess is what you would call it. So essentially you need to input a bunch of information into their system to prove that you are a fundraiser. And for every amount of money you raise or every activity you do, you get a certain number of points. Once you pass the point threshold to take the exam, you pay um, a significant amount of money to take a 200 word um, multiple choice test to prove that you know how to fundraise as if the actual fundraising that you're doing and getting points for is not enough. And then once you pass the 200 uh, multiple choice question test, you get to put the letter CFRE after your name in your email signature and on your LinkedIn profile. So it is a way for people who are not familiar with fundraising to recognize who is serious about fundraising when they're doing hiring or looking for somebody with fundraising expertise. Um, It's a way for fellow fundraisers to recognize like who, I want to say who's more knowledgeable and who's been in the field longer, but honestly, that's not really how it works in real life, but that's how it was meant to be, I think. Um, So I got my CRFRE mostly because I convinced my job to pay for it. So, that made a huge difference in being able to actually take said test. Um, I also was a one person shop for a really long time, which is kind of the opposite of Erin's experience because you've always been with bigger organizations. Um, But I felt like I needed that credibility if I wanted to move into a director role and move into doing some bigger fundraising. I felt like I needed something to prove that I wasn't just like a mid-level fundraiser who kind of did a little bit of everything. So that's, that's how I landed here with the CFRE that I have a lot of feelings about.
1: So Erin, you have been successful with, without the CFRE Mm -hmm. and you are now considering getting one. So what is, what is making you consider that? Is it a a job? Is it a personal, is it professional? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what's making you think about it?
2: So I think this is like the grand foil for the podcast because Mm -hmm. I think I was thinking of it, but that feeling has really kind of waned. And a lot of it is really, and we can get into this, but it's, 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 I feel like it's a misplacement of a credential in that Mm -hmm. the CFRE is very valuable if you're an executive director or you're coming from an administrative role and you want to move into a leadership where I think CFREs would be really great for boards. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that the credentialing is perhaps one of the biggest barriers to making success in fundraising careers more accessible. Mm -hmm. Um, and it doesn't necessarily, I think the fact that you have to literally do all the work, just so someone can say, you know how to do all the work is a gross misuse of resources. So, (laughs) um, that is, I think I had considered it and I had looked into it because I don't wanna discount without that. There are a lot of people who look at the CFRE and say, oh, that that's some type of expertise or that designates some sort of expertise. Mm-hmm. But I would also say, and having been on a lot of hiring panels, um, sometimes the CFRE is something people discriminate against as well because we have a lot of people who have a lot of practical knowledge and know not as much application. Or for example, like the CFRE doesn't tell you that you're good at data analytics and you get predictive modeling or prospect research. And it just kind of quantifies the fact that you've been able to close the gift. And then if you've been able to close the gift and you have the numbers and you can speak about a donor moving through the process and how you help them do that. I don't think that the CFRE helps you more than having that like practical experience and being able to think it,
0: so. Well, also the CFRE is a multiple choice exam. So that doesn't mean that you can communicate well. It just means you can memorize facts. Um, or
1: take tests really well.
0: Yeah. Or take mm-hmm. tests really, I, which I do, which is why I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. Um, but I know people who have struggled and taken the CFRE more than once and you know, had, had a hard time passing the test. Whereas I'm a good test taker. I'm good at memorizing information and kind of understanding the way they're asking the question in order to come up with the right answer. But does that mean I'm better at fundraising than them? I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think I'm just a good test taker and other people with more knowledge or have raised more money or have more expertise than me might not be.
1: I can't remember what year it was, maybe 20. 17. I had completely qualified for the CFRE. I put in all my numbers and all that stuff. And I was getting ready to schedule the exam and ask me when I want to take it. And I really had to sit and think like, I am a horrible test taker. Like I, I, I am like, I'm the kind of person who will take a test, get done and be like, holy crap, I'm done. And there's still like a ton of time on the clock and go back and second guess all my answers and second guess them wrong. Like I i mean, an anxiety ridden test taker. Um, hate doing it. So, the fact that I had to then pay that money because I work for a nonprofit that didn't have a big PD budget. And then I also had to then take a test that, like you said, a lot of people fail even though they're great fundraisers, like it doesn't preclude me from actually doing my job and how well I am. It's just, I'm a bad test taker. It was like, why put myself through that and spend that money personally? Like maybe if I, I don't even think I would have done it if my job did it just because mm-hmm. of that. But I think the other thing is who's making these questions mm-hmm. and like, what is it getting to too, right, if you're moving through that process, especially now when we're talking about moving beyond philanthropy, we're talking about decolonizing philanthropy, and we're trying to move more towards a community centered focus and practice. Are we certifying people in a traditional sense mm-hmm. that's creating this vicious cycle all over again? What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yes um I so I am on the board of our local AFP chapter I think everybody who listens probably knows that by now and we did our CFRE refresher course last month and I sat in as um a, a zoom administrator essentially to make sure that everything ran smoothly so I was like half listening but more than one of the instructors said when in doubt choose the most donor-centric answer the, when you're taking the test choose the most donor-focused answer and that will almost always be the right answer. And every time they said that, like the hair on the back of my neck stood up. And I was like, what are we teaching people? Like, what are we reinforcing? Like, that is not always the best answer in real life. So why is it always the best answer on the test? And yeah, that's, that's been my experience. Erin, what do you think?
2: So I, So talking about like decolonizing, so one of my big radical platforms is, and this is really gonna piss some people off, but fundraising okay. is a people-to-people profession. There mm-hmm. are little kids fundraising on their blocks. There are people who know how to engage people to rally people around missions. That's what we do. I think it's great to have a bachelor's degree to do it. I think it's great to like have some education. It's great to have all these certifications. But I think we also need to start centering fundraising around core skills. And that's mm-hmm. probably not a novel idea. I just think that I'm really about taking off all those certifications and really evaluating a person's ability to really um, engage each other peer-to-peer. So I get frustrated, I think, about the CFRE. Perhaps I would feel like there is more value to it if it was one of those, it was like um, some of the credentialing you do for academy. So you like mm-hmm. apply, <laughs> They re- you have a board or somebody pr- like review your experience, review your application, and then you get it. But to take a test, to say that I know what I've, I've done in the past is valid. That's right. a little funny to me. And then when it would have been the most useful when I was a staff assistant and a development coordinator and all those things, because those titles are hard to overcome. Mm-hmm. You can't, even if you have a lot of skill, you, there's not a lot of opportunity to jump right from what seems like a very support, support role mm-hmm. to a frontline fundraising role, even if that's what you're in can't afford the test didn't have like the numbers didn't have the or didn't have enough of like the continuing education if i wanted to, if i had to do the continuing education it would have been all paying for continuing education it wouldn't have been me instructing right. anything it wouldn't be so i feel like i get frustrated by the credentialing and then to the point about like you know how it how well is the test constructed because i feel like that's kind of Mm-hmm. Along the lines of what you ladies were talking about. I just, I don't know. I just feel like you can be donor. I, well, this is the other thing. I think you can be donor-centric and it be the right kind of donor-centric. So, right. but that's the lesson that you have to learn in, in practice as understanding that your benefactors are partners with you and you guys are all working with the same mission. It's mutually beneficial circle there and then it's also having a leadership team that really believes in that. That's not something like taking a test to identify donor centric answers is not it's <laughs> also not like an indicator that you really know how to support and move a mission forward, which is I think mm-hmm. why we fundraise and why right. we want people to know that we're really good at this mm-hmm. because we want to we know how to move missions forward and we know how to speak and champion on behalf of others. So
0: So you said something that definitely piqued my interest, but I think would pique a lot of people's interest, which is um, you can be donor centric in the right way. And being that you work for a large, you know, university healthcare hospital network, I'm curious what that looks like to you in your role with like a larger organization.
2: Yeah, I think, so I feel like we talk about large organizations versus small organizations as if they're like, so, so, so different. Mm I think the only difference sometimes is access, but I think it's still the same challenges. We have a job to be an intermediary to a certain extent between people who are passionate and wanna see this impact and people who are on the ground working towards that impact. Um, And I think that in being donor centric, um, it's finding the donors whose interests align and whose interests match Mm -hmm. as opposed to finding people who care and then constructing something that, you know, is in with what they think. And I think we've had a real great, op- like, I think in my work, I'm really fortunate because we find a lot of people who, particularly with like health equity and moving a health system in a direction it's never been, we find a lot of people who get the entrepreneurial vibe of that and the fact that the metrics are gonna look different The work is gonna look different. The way we make decisions is gonna look different and have left us the space. But I think that's being clear and transparent with them. And it's also once again, like just making sure that as a fundraiser, I'm listening to what they're saying. I'm listening to what they're interested with. And I'm like making sure that they're hearing the information that aligns with that. Because I think that's the other thing. You can hear one thing Hear a topic here and not listen deeply enough to know like perhaps when they said food they meant nutrition or perhaps when they said food they meant access and like mm-hmm. understanding all those different nuances so um that's probably what I mean by donor engagement in the right way and when we're 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 yeah. really finding people coming to get, it's a rallying point like
0: yeah and I think you have a unique you work on unique projects for being such a large healthcare network. Um, do you wanna just run down quickly the types of projects that you are working on with health equity?
2: Yeah, so one of the things I think I'm really proud about of our campaign um, and we are in a billion dollar campaign, it like blows my mind to say that um, with a hundred million of that focus on in community impact and investment. And I think that often when institutions large and small I'll just say say we're gonna we want to reinvest in the community it's with an eye to hold those dollars for themselves and Mm -hmm. I think the new model for us and like I think what's leading edge and what's really focused in on impact and equity and justice is that we've done we've realized we've acknowledged our access to certain people and the confidence they have in our institution but have made really specific efforts to give that money back out so Mm -hmm. so my favorite programs that we've done so far are our catalyst grants in the Latino community, which was focused on capacity building of um, a variety of nonprofits who've committed to health equity, who see themselves in, in, in the in a space and address some of the vital conditions that we have no idea how to do. We were able to get $600,000 out for that. Um, and I'm, I'm really proud of the partnership that we have with Temple on the West side of broad, CERT like to reduce stroke. Like that's a lot of prevention work. Stroke's in the name, but we're really not dealing with stroke. We're, we're talking about healthy eating. We're realizing that the neighborhoods are, are not designed to produce health. Mm-hmm. People don't have access to the resources. And so working with a really collaborative team around that. And then we have the Refugee Wellness Center, which is probably the um, Huntsville Wellness Center, which is probably our most renowned project. But it's been really exciting to be, to say we want something to be culturally confident. We want something to be designed for the communities that we're serving. And we want something that's like investment in something they care about. So an asset in, in the, their neighborhood to be able to design that work in partnership with CMAX. So I think that your question was about, you know kind of seeing where we're highlighting the work. Mm-hmm. You could tell I'm like, now I'm like, let me come back to the question. Cause I rambled a bit. Um, <laughs> so I
0: like the rambling. I mean, Go you've, so it. you've told me about, ramble. <laughs> yeah, we can ramble a lot, but uh, you've told me about these programs before. And I think it's the amount of community centric work that Jefferson is doing. And then the amount of community centric fundraising that allows you to do as a fundraiser, because you already have designed the program itself with the community in mind. Um, it kind of, kind of sets a standard in a way that I don't think we have a lot of standards to look at for community-centric models. So um sorry to put you on the spot, but as you were talking, I was like, we gotta learn more about this.
2: No, I appreciate it. And that's why you're the host because I was like, I think I answered the question. I really feel like I came back to it at the end, but I was like, if they want me to articulate this again, we're out of luck. So
1: no, that's good. I mean, because we were having that conversation um, last month around the idea of community-centric fundraising and fundraising is only as successful as the organization that it exists within, right? Mm-hmm. And the donors that you're working with. So, you know, what is the piece that's missing and, and what is actually has to happen to make that successful? Mm-hmm. Thinking like, you know, we don't really have any large institutions that have really demonstrated that publicly. So, you know, those examples were, were great.
2: I have a question perhaps for you guys, um, cause it's just kind of, I think this notion of collaborative fundraising, we've talked a lot about it, but it's never been more important. I feel like the buckets are smaller, mm-hmm. the, the individual donors are more focused. So like, can you guys talk me through some of maybe experiences that you guys have had on collaborative fundraising? And or tell me what your wish list would be around a partnership like that. You know what I mean? Like who who makes a great partner in, in that type of stuff? I
0: mean, anytime you ask me about my ideal world, I say burn it all down. So I'm going to let Monique kick this
1: one off. <laughs> I'm really behind you with burning it down. Um, but, I, you know, but I will say that, um, so I sit on the steering committee for Philadelphia Black Giving Circle. And last year, you know, like many other, you know, black centered organizations, we got an influx of dollars. But what was interesting was that it gave us an opportunity to really figure out who we are as an organization. And it was that we're actually more than just a giving circle. And we really redefined our membership and our and our involvement with our partners as to organizations that are actually committed to unlearning anti-Black racism and are committed to uplifting Black-led organizations and communities. So really one having that, that foundation as to like, this is what we're about, are you about that? You know, because I mean, we had organizations that were like, hey, we wanna partner with you, we're going to sell some beer in your name and um, you know, you guys have to promote it and we're like, hey, you know, guns, tobacco, firearms, alcohol have been like the detriment of the black community. So we have to respectfully decline, Um, but you Mm -hmm. know, thanks. You know, we can't stop you from giving, but like we can't actually like partner. It can't Mm -hmm. can't be that collaborative partnership. Whereas there have been other, there've been foundations actually that have been traditional family foundations that are like, what can we learn from you? How can we work together? Because this is somewhere where we have faltered and we don't understand. So we're now doing a lot of partnering with those organizations now to help them understand, but to also support the work that we're doing. So really having first having that foundation of where what we're standing on to go forward, I think is, is crucial and really putting it out there like blatantly, like this is what we're about. This is what we're trying to do. Are you willing to get down on this? If not, you know, there is another organization out there for you to collaborate and partner with.
0: Okay. I have two examples. Um, so one is the negative example. I'll start with negative and I'm positive. Um, so there is a family foundation here in Philadelphia that uh, my organization has a good relationship with. And they did a funding cycle for um, BIPOC-led organizations recently, but prior to announcing that they were funding BIPOC-led organizations, um, we had a side chat with them at their request, and they gave us some of that funding prior to announcing the full funding opportunity. And I don't think I realized when we had the chat with them that that was the pot of money that they were planning to give to us, and. We're not a BIPOC-led organization, we serve a majority BIPOC population, so will the funding for the specific project that we talked about go directly to BIPOC folks who have been marginalized and disadvantaged? 100%. But at the same time, if your goal is to get the money to BIPOC-led organizations, why are you going around your own process? (laughs) Why are you coming to a white led organization to have side chats? Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of my negative response is like having a good relationship is one thing, but also like as a white led organization learning when it's time to step back and, and maybe not accept funding or not accept the meeting or the side chat or whatever you want to call it. Um, I, I have no idea what I would have done if I actually knew ahead of time that that was the pot of money that they were talking about. And I can't say that I would have turned it down because it was pivotal in getting um, telehealth and telemedicine opportunities to our participants that don't have them. So that is a super important project that I definitely want to see get off the ground. But at the same time, like that money was not meant for me and my white ass jumped in here and took it anyway. So that is kind of a bad example of like, coming together and community modeling. And then I guess the better example is a different family foundation um, that has really leaned into trust-based philanthropy with us um, and with us specifically. So we were kind of their pilot organization into taking a step back, trusting the process, trusting our expertise, letting us do what we do with minimal reporting, minimal um, requesting. Like we have a once a year chat and we took our gift from an annual gift to a three-year gift. And they have increased our gift every year that we've been in touch with them. And it's been an amazing partnership. They show up to our participant events. They really want to understand what we do and also want to let us do what we do the way that we need to do it without imposing their restrictions or their impact statistics or like anything like that. And those are the relationships I want to see more of, I guess. And the ones I want to see less of are the ones where they say like, well, we've got BIPOC money, but let's slide you in there before we open it up to BIPOC led organizations.
2: Yeah. I feel like this conversation has led my mind down two tracks. Mm -hmm. We do this every episode. (laughs) It's normal. (laughs) I feel like one is the safer way to go and it's probably the way I'll go. Um, But for your information, one is kind of this trust-based philanthropy concept. So the Mm -hmm. notion that it doesn't take a 47 page proposal, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: it takes, or that that you're leaning into Mm -hmm. having communication as opposed to Mm having a fully fledged out plan you're you're leaning into the journey with us to make it work as opposed to being specific but then there's the other other one and I hold on before you move to the other one I do have to say that is our largest private grant
0: every year is the Mm trust-based one that requires a two-page letter with no restrictions whatsoever they say just send us a letter on what you want to do next year and I send them a two-page letter and they say cool here's your money which is the easiest both request and reporting process I've ever had in my life, mm-hmm. as opposed to the 47 pages that I have to submit for $5,000. So more people need to lead into this is what I'm I going refuse with. refuse
1: to do those. I'm like, I will go find
0: $5,000. <laughs> right. Yeah.
2: For one person, that all I have to do is make a phone call. Right. Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead with your second Well, <laughs> Yeah. And I also would say like, at this point you can go fund me $5,000 pretty much for anything. So... <laughs> <laughs> yes anywho not to diminish that philanthropy but um but the other piece i feel like this is where i'm more passionate about you talk a lot about like these foundations these donors overall pivoting to bipoc led leadership which i think is amazing but and I think we celebrated a lot ourselves, but if we're not making these careers more accessible mm-hmm. to people, then I don't know how big, how impactful the shift is gonna be. If you think about it, if you look at executive directors, if you look at leadership teams, the people who tend to get, the, have the most seniority come from these fundraising backgrounds. And that's cause we, our organizations live and die by the money. We can all have good intentions, but if we don't have the dollars, we can't do the work. So I just, feel like the career trajectory is just so good if you can get in and you can learn and you can do all this stuff. But I like, I even think about some of like the applications I've seen. There's people who have proven that they can rally communities, Mm -hmm. that they have, you know, insider knowledge um, and, you know, of what is going on on the ground. Mm -hmm. They have credibility, but what they don't have is five, 57 letters behind their name or some you know, fancy degree for your school or whatever. And we are in a city, and I'll talk more about this at Leading Philanthropy AFP, but we're <laughs> in a city in which fundraising careers are just like, we. Ha- there's an overwhelming amount of opportunity. There's opportunity in the, the, with the community organizations. There's opportunity with the associations. We are a healthcare market. All of us are always looking for new people. Um, All this, all these different things, but unless you have somehow like fundraising has be, well, not become, has always been a pedigree Mm -hmm. profession. And I think if we don't get introspective on that and start thinking seriously about like what it means to cultivate a pipeline, like how far back are we reaching? How excited are people? How many people are exposed to these careers opportunities and what we actually do without like all the fancy language? Yeah then I don't think we're going to, I think what this pivot to BIPOC leadership is great. And it's not to say there aren't leaders, but we don't yet know how to give them opportunities. It's not that there's not people we (laughs) haven't figured out. We haven't made the steps to make sure our structures give them opportunity. So, okay,
1: so apparently we're, we're doing the same presentation. For I was going to say,
0: <laughs> all three of us are speaking at Leading Philanthropy. So my presentation is actually with um, someone that I hired and has now moved on to bigger and better things to talk about um, how to make a comfortable space for people who don't look like you to work in your office. Um, Not necessarily because of the experience she had with our organization, but just in general, if you're a mostly white organization and you suddenly go out and hire a bunch of BIPOC folks because you think that's what you're supposed to do, If you're not ready to provide a safe space for them in the office, then you're really doing them a disservice and you a disservice and everybody a disservice. But I know Monique is speaking at Leading Philanthropy as well. And what is your topic again?
1: So I'm speaking on elevating philanthropy, and we're looking at the current landscape of the BIPOC leadership and the change that it has made over the last several years Mm -hmm. and how we can actually elevate the field to really be responsive to that change, because if you're looking at back to Val's point, like if you're looking at the BIPOC leadership and looking at the changes of those organizations, you want to, they want to be a little bit more community centric, right? Mm -hmm. And how does that actually impact the donors and stewardship? How does that impact fundraising? How does that Mm -hmm. impact programming? And also if you're in, in the organization and trying to move up, are you just being promoted without voice? Do you mm-hmm. actually have, say, looking at organizationally what it would change? Because a lot of times we talk about the donors mm-hmm. and what what donors need to do and what foundations need to do, but we seldomly look at organizations and what they need to do to adjust to this change of leadership.
2: Yeah. And we're talking very um, specifically about cultivating talent, cultivating environment and the work we're doing. So this is another one of those, you're going to go on a journey with us. We're not at the end. Mm-hmm. Um but I think one of the important things, just one thing I want to like respond to in this conversation is that like it's important to create an environment where it's inclusive. Mm-hmm. And but I don't want people to walk away and hear that BIPOC people need some sort of special environment
1: for accommodations, work, right? Or
2: that we can't work in bad com- accommodations because like I think Thank you, you, you know resi- someone said resilience is the baseline. For a lot of these people, it's not something we have to generate. It's something that we just are because of the circumstances in life. Um, And so like, I think that it's like a treat unto others as you would do to yourself or do to your cousin or your granddaughter or your best friend, as opposed to like, maybe not being so interpersonal with your BIPOC colleagues. But I also think like, let's talk about paying dues. What does that look like? I have heard so many people be like, this person just knows so much. They're just so great. They have all this insight, this knowledge. Let's make a space for them here. And they can be a coordinator and they'll just work (laughs) theirself up. And I'm like, we we just spent all this time acknowledging that they have this special skill set that is unique and dynamic and so necessary for us. But once again, we refuse to see the transferable skills Mm -hmm, in their resume. And then so now- what they're doing is paying their dues two and three times over. Yeah. And I think that is, that is a conversation about the environment. Like that, mm-hmm. is a, that is a structure that needs to be thought about more so than like, do are we celebrating Black History Month? Are we doing, and I think that all those things are great, mm-hmm. but I could spend no time at my job talking about being Black if that was right. an option for me. <laughs> but I also know that being Black at my job has put me in positions and have made me go through things that not every, not all of my colleagues do. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think you that's know, and, more. And one, go ahead. one
1: other tangent that just made me think of this because I was just like looking at something in one of the Facebook groups and someone posted a job for um, donor engagement and event manager. And it was like sixty thousand dollars. And I'm like, so wait, this person is supposed to manage all your donors and do your fundraising for this national, if not international, organization and all your pay like, okay, so as we're talking about like skill sets, like can we also pay people what they're worth? Like Mm -hmm. if you're expecting me to bring in millions of dollars, I need for you to not only pay me sixty thousand dollars because then. It's that vicious cycle of you're going to get people who are not necessarily qualified, and they're going to start at these lower positions and earn their credits and move up. But it's just like, I can bring the money in, give me what I pay, what I'm due for this, and and you'll get what you need. I think that I don't know, and, and I know it goes back to the whole oh, we're trying not to exceed ten percent, even though I'm sure they're not anywhere near that with a sixty thousand dollar position.
2: Well, and also, um, what's wrong with 10, exceeding ten
1: percent? I just got to say that.
2: Like, <laughs> I it's true. Well, I had this. I had this
1: client that I was just working with, and we submitted the um the proposal, and it ca- it kicked back to like, oh, you're exceeding ten percent, and I'm like, your calculated document says that we're not exceeding ten percent. And we're like, oh, we're sorry. You c- it's not that you can't exceed 10% of the actual budget. You can't exceed 10% of the what you're program. Requesting. Of the- no, no, no. What we were requesting, it was 10% of what we were requesting. Okay. But it was not 10% of the actual program mm-hmm. amount. It was the most weird thing. And I was like, oh, we're really getting this granular now. Like this is literally 10% of our request. The 90% of this is all, but like, no, we actually had, so we didn't, we had to readjust numbers and increase programming and decrease admin.
0: So one thing listeners is if you could see our faces in response to this, <laughs> it, you, you're missing out. Um, and second-, <laughs> a <YouTube of> this. <laughs> second thing is um, we're talking about 10% overhead Cost. Right. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that, Erin, because we both um, worked at the American Association for Cancer Research for a while. There, um, you much longer than I did, and that is where I was introduced to this overhead cost concept and their fierce pride in keeping it incredibly low. I think one of the years I was there, it was like ninety four percent goes to program, and one of the years I was there, it dropped to eighty nine, and it was a problem. Like it was a significant, like we have fucked up and we need to get this back down immediately. Um, but that was my leading pitch as a fundraiser. When I was, I did a lot of workplace giving. So I would go out to agency fairs and that was my pitch was like 92% of your dollars going to go directly to our programs. And I didn't know any better. So I've come mm-hmm. so far <laughs> since then. <laughs>
2: Why is why is the actual staff work not considered going to the program? That is my I can't question, with that.
1: But. so I always say this <laughs> this is my example that I put out to donors when we have this conversation. It's like, so what you're telling me is you want us to buy crayons. You mm-hmm. want me to buy crayons and put it in a room. You don't want me to stack to structure programming, staffing. You don't want me to develop curriculum. You don't want me to buy other supplies. You want mm-hmm. me to put a box of crayons in a room. What's going to happen is they're just going to color on the walls. There's not going to be any productive mission-based work going on
2: mm-hmm. because you're
1: not allowing us to do the infrastructure behind what we're doing with the crayons. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I mean, and some people get it and they laugh I'm like, oh my gosh, that was great. And other people are like, okay, 10% though. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's so weird. Like it's all one organization all working towards this mission. Are you supporting the mission?
2: So wait, I'm going to circle it back to our original topic. Right. These are the people who need CFREs. It is not the fundraising. It's not the fundraisers who've done the work on the ground, particularly if this is like a quantified. First of all, we need to reverse how it's done. Mm -hmm. Credential at the beginning, not at the end. Start it all down. Start it. Yeah. But the people who need this is because it's like the way we have to, you have to learn so much as a fundraiser. You have to learn budgeting. You have to learn strategic planning. You have to kind of be a semi- you you a dangerous novice on your programming components and like there's analytics and there's investments in annual giving and all that marketing all of that you learn in this you you get some of that in a CFRE or you Mm -hmm. could get some of that in a CFRE there's no context for a lot of people around what these dollars do and Mm -hmm. where they go and how that looks and like what it what it is and so I feel like that's hitting the nail on the head about why we, certifications are important and building knowledge is important and convert, uh, like conveying authority to a certain extent is important. But like also if we're gonna spend time credentialing around fundraising, let's let people get a real, people who are outsiders or people who this is not their day-to-day reality, get more context for the work as they're reviewing grants or joining boards or doing, because your half the time it's your board members who are like you guys are spending too much
0: mm-hmm. like the
2: people who are for you and for your programs are still like 10% makes sense to me because we don't want to be wasteful and I'm like there's nothing wasteful about what we're doing no. every fundraiser I know works 10 hours a day at least six days a week there's no might be seven days a week but I'm hoping everyone takes the lord's day off or rest in the hammock on a Sunday or a Saturday or something like that but I just think if we're gonna spend time with credentials, one, it should be a mechanism to um, increase opportunity for people who are entry level or people who are trying to rise in their career, the beginning. So it should be come in the beginning, not after you've raised 10 million or $20 million. And it also should be a credentialing for public awareness and public knowledge of like what we're supposed to be doing, what we're trying to do.
1: So. No, that's, that's, that's a good point. So since we're circling back, mm-hmm. so Val's got her CFRE. Mm-hmm. I do not. And I will not.
0: Aaron, what's on the, where are we no, going? There's no. no fence.
1: There's no fence anymore. We've, we've okay. left
0: the yard. <laughs> so we're, so the we're, yard. Two to,
1: we're two to one, we're two to one, but the CFRE should be something for novices who need to understand how to fundraise. The test itself should not be necessarily a test. If it is for professionals, it should just be credential You based on the work that you've done reviewing it, even maybe getting a signature saying, yes, I concur she, he did re- raise these funds. And it should be for those who just need to understand what the practice of fundraising is. Yeah. EDs, board members, maybe even donors. I'm here for it. Now, I'm as so we get through it. this trust-based community-centric fundraising. I'm not saying credentialing, but I know there's a lot of websites. Like I'm part of the Trust-Based Philanthropy Project. I sit on all the webinars and I'm in the peer group. I also am part of the Community-Centric Fundraising Slack and part of that list. Um, And there's a lot of resources to have others share their journeys and for you to learn from. But again, that is only as successful as the organization and the stakeholders around it. So what does that look like? Is that also kind of like CFRE? Here's these questions. Here's this book. Like we're going to put the practice test of CFRE in the show notes. That way you guys can see it for yourself, but also get feedback on it. And also see if yourself, if that's something that you want to take, we're not telling you not to get the CFRE, you know, leave that decision to you. This is all personal. based.
0: There, <laughs> like yeah, there, are, based conversations. there are definitely benefits to having the CFRE. It just depends on, what situation you're in professionally and where you want to go. Like, I don't know that I'm going to keep my CFRE active for the rest of my life, but did it help me get a director job? 100%. Like those two things happened like very much in sequence. Um, So Yeah. So uh, like Monique said, we're going to have the um, practice test in the show notes. We're going to have the CFRE website in the show notes. Your local AFP chapter may have a study group. Um, Most of them do. They do CFRE refresher courses. Um, I really don't think I can sum it up better than either one of you just did. Um, I want to keep talking to you,
2: Erin. I don't want to let you go. I'll put the glasses on anytime and hop on (laughs) the Zoom screen. You can't see the glasses, but they're
0: Fabulous. You're pretty
1: awesome. Pretty awesome. Okay, pretty
2: solid. You. I had to bring them up because they couldn't see my face. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they also couldn't see my cats attacking me throughout this entire thing. So thanks for putting up with that co-host and guest. So I think uh, I think with that, we're wrapping up this episode. So um, thank you again, Aaron, for being here. We love you. We're looking forward to chatting with you all again next month and hopefully bringing in some more guests and doing some more fun things. Right, Monique?
1: Definitely. And I think next month, I'm going to just go, I just want to continue this conversation. We might have to bring Aaron back because I really want to start digging into the trust-based philanthropy part of this.
2: I would love um, and, to talk about that.
1: Yeah. So maybe next month we'll bring Aaron back and do a, do a part two and really talk about trust-based and community-centric
2: fundraising. I think that'd be dope. That'd be awesome. I enjoyed myself. Thank you for inviting me.
1: <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. And thank you to our listeners for once again joining us. This has been Beyond Philanthropy.